The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, illuminating spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning is the 133rd Psalm. Listen now for God's word to you. A song of ascent. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I recently read a piece online by Scott Alexander entitled Sort by Controversial. It's a fascinating and somewhat chilling short story. The narrative is told from the perspective of a fellow who works as a programmer in a Silicon Valley startup. The small marketing company that he's working for is developing an algorithm that can identify the kind of statements that will get the most positive clicks, the most thumbs up, the most forwarded links. Now obviously this would make for quite a prize, no, knowing precisely what sort of statements will make you feel happy, excited, and most importantly eager to buy a product is every marketing team's dream. In the story, the team experiences some success with this algorithm, then one day while they are experimenting with its potential uses, they flip the program on its head. They task their computer with analyzing boatloads of online content and generating statements that will be maximally controversial. When the computer eventually spits out a list of the top 100 most controversial statements, the main character looks at it and assumes that his new algorithm has failed. He reads a few of the statements and laughs. They don't seem controversial at all. Every statement on this list looks either obviously true or clearly disturbing 
and false. Disappointed, he walks into a co-worker's office to show the list of statements to her. And that's when our narrator realizes that not only has the algorithm succeeded, but dangerously so. Reading one of the statements out loud to his coworker, he's surprised when they begin to argue. How can this be, he thinks. Every one of these statements is either unambiguously true or demonstrably false. But their disagreement quickly turns acrimonious. And it sucks in other people from the company too. Before long, everybody who works there is arguing. Just one statement from this algorithm tears the entire startup business apart. Later, in reading back through the list of, of the top 100 most controversial statements, the narrator begins to find ones that look sort of familiar. Some of the computer scenarios mirror situations that have already caused controversy in the wider culture. For example, the 42nd most controversial statement on the list reads like this. An African-American sports star who kneels during the national anthem intending to protest police violence is actually an affront to the nation's dignity and a rejection of the sacrifices of its men and women in uniform. True or false? At this point, the main character realizes that his team hasn't developed a marketing tool, but a weapon. Their algorithm generates statements that, when dropped into a news feed or an internet chat room or an everyday conversation, make people hate each other. They've taught the computer to generate statements that can slice human community into ribbons. The coders name their program The Scissor. This story has stuck with me in recent months, probably because I find it to be frighteningly close to the truth. This past week, for example, a number of news outlets filed reports on fake news stories that have been circulating in Europe in advance of parliamentary elections there. One of the stories that, that keeps popping up claims that the fire that burned the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris last month was set by Islamic extremists. It's not true. Still, this story has an almost sinister staying power in the media in Europe. And as such, it serves as, as a potent tool for political forces who want to leverage societal division. It is a scissor. Now, some scissor statements have no basis at all, in fact. But others simply work by plunging us into a supercharged ethical debate, an argument that quickly becomes so toxic that we find ourselves repulsed by the positions taken by the other side. This past week, various state legislatures have passed laws that limit and criminalize abortion. In debating this legislation, 
and in advocating for and against it. Politicians employ the most powerful words and heart-wrenching scenarios they can find. It's a classic scissor. Let's dispense with the complexities. There's only two ways to go, pro-choice, pro-life. One side must be right, one side must be wrong. Over the course of my lifetime, I've seen the abortion debate from many different angles. And today, I want to make just one small, simple observation. The feeling that one gets when abortion is a subject of a public event, a panel discussion, a rally, even a sermon, is very different from the quiet conversations that happen in a pastor's study when teary-eyed individuals are trying to sort through difficult medical news and ethical matters. My point is this, scissor statements take complex and sometimes deeply personal issues and weaponize them. The goal of a scissor statement is not problem solving, but ratcheting up your anger and amplifying societal division. Sometimes the anger churned up by, by scissor statements doesn't even seem to make sense. Last year, for example, I was watching a program on CNN in which Anderson Cooper was moderating a conversation about Colin Kaepernick, the 49ers quarterback who actually did kneel during the NFL, uh, during the national anthem at NFL games to give support for the Black Lives Matter movement. In this televised forum on CNN, filmmaker Spike Lee, who was defending Kaepernick's actions, got into a conversation with a couple who lost their son when he was stationed as a U.S. Marine in Iraq. There was a great deal of pain in the back and forth between this couple and Spike Lee. But at the same time, as I was watching it, I thought, this conversation seems strangely out of sync. These people do not need to be angry with each other. They're not the source of each other's pain. Not really. None of them intended disrespect for each other. But somehow, outside voices had pointed their pain at each other, had told them that they were at odds with each other. This is the awful power of the scissor. What should we do about it? What should, what should people of faith do in the face of all the divisive and cynical voices out there that are actively trying to fan the flames of our anger and to capitalize on our fear? Should we ignore the arguments that are happening out there? Should we spend more time reading stories about the British royal family or watching cute puppy videos on YouTube? Personally, I go for the puppies over the royals, but that's a personal thing, not a scissor. Or should we engage sporadically, strategically, choose our battles? Don't get forced into fighting over something that we really don't care about. 
How should we carry ourselves as people of faith in this relentlessly contentious time? In 1913, Eleanor H. Porter wrote a book that would become a classic in children's literature. It was entitled Pollyanna. The main character, Pollyanna, was an 11-year-old orphan who lives with her stern aunt. The plot of the novel follows this girl as she navigates her way through a pretty difficult life. And she does this. She makes her way along by playing something that she calls the glad game. It's a mental exercise that she learned from her deceased father. The game goes like this. In every tough situation, no matter how bleak, Pollyanna looks around and strives to find something to be glad about. Porter's novel hit the shelves at a propitious time. In 1914, Americans were becoming increasingly worried about an expanding conflict in Europe, the conflict that we now call World War I. In the face of grim news and uncertainty from overseas, Americans embraced Pollyanna. In fact, glad clubs popped up all across this country as people tried to put Pollyanna's philosophy to work in their own lives. The 11-year-old with the cheery disposition became a role model. But over time, American impressions of Pollyanna underwent a less than flattering transformation. Over time, as the decades rolled by, as the wars continued, Americans grew more and more jaded. Originally viewed as an optimistic child with a good head on her shoulders, Pollyanna began to be described by people as a bubblehead. A rosy attitude, critics declared, is not a fix for most problems. Today, most of us would like to avoid being called a Pollyanna, and perhaps that is as it should be. If someone were to say to you, I think the controversies in this country around immigration would go away if we were all to think happy thoughts, we would probably cringe, rightly so. But here's the thing, I don't think that's a fair description of Pollyanna's approach to life. In playing her game, Pollyanna did not deny or avoid tough stuff. She didn't advocate that people stick their head in the sand. Instead, she actively sought to help distressed people, people who believed that life was pretty much a bleak and awful experience. Pollyanna wanted struggling souls to be able to look around at the world and find reasons for optimism, reasons for hope. Today's reading, Psalm 133, is fueled by the same dynamic. In this text, the psalmist looks around and, and finds reason to hope in this troubled world in those moments when people are able to dwell together 
to approach life together in a spirit of unity. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. This sort of concord, says the psalm, is a rare thing. It's a blessing from God when people can stand together and address a community's problems. It's, it's a good thing when people can pour their energy into weaving the fabric of society and not into slicing at our common bonds with a pair of scissors. The benefits of such comedy, such harmony, says the Psalms, look like the anointing of a priest or dew covering a mountain. Now what does that mean? Well, first the priest. When Aaron was anointed a priest, the Psalm reminds us that an abundance of oil was poured on him. The oil flowed over his head, down into his beard, and eventually it dripped on his robes. This, says the psalm, is what it looks like when people live together in unity. Grace, so much grace, showers down over people's heads that it will eventually touch all of them and everything around them. Now the mountain. In ancient Israel, mountains loomed large in, in the people's imagination. One such place was Mount Hermon, a peak in the far north. It would be in contemporary Lebanon, a peak that was capped with snow at nearly 10,000 feet high. Mount Hermon was a magnet for moisture. Snow and ice collected at the top. Streams ran down its sides. It was a lush place covered with mist and dew. On the other hand, Mount Zion was a much smaller hill just outside the old wall of Jerusalem where Solomon built the temple. And Mount Zion is, is located in an arid, in a dry part of the country. And, and it's this geography, the dry, small Mount Zion, the majestic dew-swept Mount Hermon that the psalmist is relying on to make a powerful point. This is what he says. When people enter the temple in unity, Mount Zion becomes Mount Hermon. When we pull together, our, our dry places will be covered by abundant water. When we, when we walk into the temple hand in hand, we will know the deepest blessings of life. Is that true? We who live in the world of scissor stories want to know, is living together in unity really the key to abundant life? I think this is a good question for our country. I think it's a good question for our church. And I think it's a good question for those of you who are about to be ordained and installed as officers today. What happens when we get together in unity? What does it look like when the dew of Mount Hermon descends on 55th and 5th? Three quick stories, and I'll take a seat. Story number one. 
Yesterday, the deacons of this church hosted a tea. They invited people on their radar screen, people they cared about, people that they loved, to come to church. The tea was held upstairs in the Corning Logan room. There were white tablecloths and fancy plates. There was piano music and singing. Kate sent me pictures. Every picture had people just overflowing with smiles. Relaxed, not forced, easy smiles, so much joy. The deacons poured oil on Aaron's head yesterday. Story number two. On Friday, I sat upstairs in my office in the afternoon talking to a young couple who will be married here in this sanctuary later this year in September. We talked about all the things that I usually cover in premarital counseling sessions, stories about how they met, discussions on their approach to conflict, and future plans regarding work and family. Near the end of our time, we started talking about faith. Without prompting, they started speaking about this church. They started bragging on you all. Last week, they became official members of this congregation. And they wanted to tell me how welcoming and engaged and beautiful and curious and service-minded they found this community. I've been religious my whole life, said the bride-to-be, but I've never felt this good about going to church. The oil ran down Aaron's head and covered his beard Story number three. John Sheehan, who's standing in the back of the sanctuary right now, I see you back there, John, a social worker with gifts for ministry, works here in this building throughout the week in this office right over here. He's here because in a showing of Christian unity, St. Patrick's Cathedral and St. Thomas Episcopal Church and this church have funded a joint outreach effort. In recent weeks, one of the cases that John has been following involves an unmarried couple, both of whom are addicted to heroin. Because they're unmarried, the city's shelter system will not allow them to enter a family shelter, and they refuse to go to separate shelters. So they've been living on the street. Now for the good news. Thanks to John's patient and persistent counsel, the couple has agreed that it's time to enter treatment for their addiction. And they also decided to get married. This past Monday, they were married here by Reverend Seamus Campbell in our chapel. And that means, of course, that they are now eligible to enter a New York City family shelter. The oil ran down Aaron's head, splashed over his beard, it dripped on his robe, it stained his clothing with abundance. Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker points out that bad news and good news typically unfold at different speeds. Bad news strikes like a snake. It is flashy and awful. 
And as such, it is perfectly suited to manipulate us with its fearful content and grim portents. Good news, though, good news usually unfolds slowly. Good news happens organically, like a flower bloom opening in a garden. Good news is almost always less brash, more stealthy than bad news. And that's why we so often miss it, discount it, let it pass us by. And that, I suppose, was the original Pollyanna's point. And while we're at it, Psalm 133's point two. When people get together and pursue God's work in this world, good news happens. It's there. It's real. It's all around us. When our energies turn to weaving instead of scissoring, watch out. Because the oil and the dew and the possibilities for life will come cascading down. They will dapple this world with patches of joy. Go from this place. Do not be the sort of Christian who runs with scissors. <laughs> Remember the words of the psalmist, how good and pleasant it is when kindred dwell together in unity. Go from here, trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 Four nine one, eight three three one. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons to six four six, four nine one, eight three three one. Thank you and God bless.